All right, if you've been coming to our church for the last couple weeks, we've been walking through the book of Colossians, and we've hit a pretty significant portion where we've been, where Andrew has been unpacking major relationships that all Christians have. For example, he spent about two weeks talking about the relationship parents should have with their children, and vice versa, he spent another week talking about the relationship kids should have with their parents. Then he spent another couple weeks talking about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And last week, we unpacked the relationship that believers should have with their work. Now, some of you, all right, sitting in in the audience for the last month, you've been writing notes, you've been paying attention, but you probably had this thought. You're like, none of those things apply to me, all right, because I'm not married. I don't have kids. I'm what? I'm single, all right? Today is your day, all right? This sermon is for you, all right? We are preaching to the single people. Is anybody excited about that? All right, they weren't at 9 9 a.m. Come on, there we go, all right. I I knew we had some fired up single people at the 11 o'clock service. And even in between the services, I I talked to a couple men who have been in church for decades, longer than I've been alive, and they said that's the first time I heard someone preach a full sermon on what it means to be a Christian single person. So this is a very important thing. I'm going to give you a couple reasons why it's important to talk about biblical singleness, all right? Here's the first reason, because Jesus was single, all right? You got to start with Jesus, but Jesus lived for 33 years on this earth, all right, he worked, he did ministry, he preached and taught, and every day, every moment of his life, he was a bachelor. All right? And he had, he had the most impactful life this world has ever seen, and he also lived the most satisfying and full life this world have, has ever seen. So it can be done. But on top of that, the Apostle Paul was single. All right? And here's what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 7. When Paul talks about his singleness, he doesn't describe it as a punishment all right? or, a, or something to be endured, he's actually thankful and enjoys his singleness. All right, point number two. At, at this point in time, men and women are single longer than any other time in history. All right? Think about it. In previous generations and even centuries, most men and women married in their teenage years, their early 20s. Today, on average, most men marry at the age of 27 and most women at the age of 25. So now more than ever, men and women are marrying late. And here's the, here's the deal. If you don't do singleness right, you won't do marriage right. So it's more important than ever that we learn biblical principles about being single. And here's the third point, all right? If you think about this, we talked about marriage a couple weeks ago, and Andrew explained, all right, that the primary purpose of marriage is to reveal the gospel nature of Jesus' love for the church. That's why in Ephesians 5, Paul says this, the two shall become one flesh, and he says this mystery is profound, and it refers to Christ and the church. Here's what Paul is saying, all right? A godly marriage should be a glimpse of Jesus' sacrificial gospel love for you and me. And see, in the same way, biblical singleness is profoundly theological. Here's the third point. I'm getting to it. All right? The third point is this, is that biblical singleness reveals to the world that Jesus is enough, that he's sufficient. See, biblical singleness, singleness done the right way, is the clearest picture to the world that a relationship with Christ is all satisfying and everlasting. It reveals to the world, it proclaims to the world, 
it shouts to the world that Jesus is enough. He's all I need. Does that make sense? All right, so this is an important topic. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to elevate our views of singleness. So often we view it as something to be endured, as a punishment, as a sentence, but this is a gift from God, and we should steward it well. We got to make it count, all right? I'm going to channel my inner football coach because I hang out with football players and coaches all day. All right, I'm going to try to motivate you. I'm going to give you a pep talk. Because here's what's really interesting, all right? You can actually watch, all right, at practice the way a freshman and a senior practices, and they're completely different. Because a freshman's mentality is this. I've still got a couple years of practice, of games, of off-season workouts, but there's something psychological, internal that occurs when you become a senior where you just have this thought, this is my last season, This is my last off-season. This is my last homecoming. This is my last workout. I've got to make it count. So in the same way for my single people, my men and women, all right, your your, your singleness, all right, is a special season of life, and you've got to make it count. You might only be single for another five months. It might be five years. It might be 20 years, but I'm going to make it count because this is a special season of life that God has given me. Now, if you're not single, all right, and that's a lot of people in this room as well, here's what I'd ask you to do, all right? First off, the single people have listened respectfully and taken notes as we've talked about marriage and children, so you can do the same thing, all right? But the second thing is, all right, we're all part of the body of Christ. And you've probably got single kids or single grandkids, and they're single brothers and sisters in this congregation. So think of them as you listen to this sermon, because we're called to live life in community, So the main point is this, is that your single season of life is a special season. Don't waste your singleness. So before we get to what the Bible has to say about singleness, all right, let's briefly touch on what the world communicates about being single. And there's really two perspectives. See, a lot of people in the world, when you flip on the TV, when you watch movies, you listen to the radio, you realize very quickly that our world idolizes sex. And so when our world talks about singleness, it says this, your life is over when you get married, right? That's the message our world pushes, right? Your wife is the ball and chain, right? You lose your freedom. And for that reason, all right, real satisfaction, real fulfillment comes from being single, hooking up, having relationships with no commitment, and in just enjoying your singleness, all right? That's the message the world pushes on us. It makes an idol out of sex and autonomy. But here's what happens. The, the church all right, has swung the pendulum in the other direction. And the church just says, look, we don't make an idol out of sex, but we make an idol out of having a soulmate, or being married. And whereas the world says your life is over when you get married, oftentimes the message we receive in church is that your life is over without marriage. Do you see that? And and oftentimes we think, we feel when we come to church that if I could just date this type of girl, my life would be okay. Or if I could marry this type of person, my life would have meaning. If I could be pursued, right, by this type of man, everything would be okay. All right? But here's the point. All right? They're both idols. And they're both preventing you from worshiping God. And each idol is equally destructive to your marriage. 
See, if you enter marriage and you've made an idol out of sex and your personal freedom, you'll never be able to be faithful. You'll never be able to display marital fidelity and covenant with another man or woman. But in the same respect, if you enter your marriage and you've made an idol all right, out of having a soulmate, in a sense, you're asking your husband or wife to occupy a position that only Christ himself can fulfill. All right? You'll destroy your marriage from the inside out because your expectations will be too high. So it's important that we get back to what the Bible says about singleness. So we're going to look at one passage. This is 1 Corinthians 7. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it. And as we flip open to 1 Corinthians 7, I want to give you a little context, all right? This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. And this was a deeply flawed church, all right? They were dysfunctional in so many different ways. And so this book in the Bible is really an extended rebuke. In fact, this church was primarily dysfunctional in two different ways. First off, they were doing singleness the wrong way. All right? They were addicted to sex. Just down the road from the church in Corinth, there was a temple. And the te- temple was devoted to one particular god. That god's name was Aphrodite. Does anybody know who Aphrodite was the god of? She's the god of? Love, okay? But see, they were doing love the wrong way, all right? Not a covenantal love that we talked about a couple weeks ago. In fact, the temple of Aphrodite was home to 1,000 temple prostitutes, okay? And, and, and the members of Corinth liked to frequent that temple, all right? They, they really enjoyed worshiping that God, all right? But on top of that, all right, we also hear about one man in the book of Corinth who has an illicit sexual relationship with his very own stepmother. All right? So these guys are doing singleness the wrong way. But on top of that, there are factions in the church. There's boasting in the church. There's strife and discord. And here's basically what it boils down to. Everyone is boasting about their relationship status. So the single people are saying, hey, being single is the best. All right, bump you married people. And the married people were very prideful about being married. And the widows and the D4Cs were basically getting left out. And so these people were at each other's throats. That's the background. That's the context. That's the congregation that Paul is writing to. So pick up with me in verse 7. We'll see what Paul has to say. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. Now, just so you understand, at this point in Paul's life, he is undoubtedly single, So sometimes commentators disagree whether or not Paul was married or single. See, Paul was a member at one point in his life of the Sanhedrin. One of the requirements to be a part of the Sanhedrin, which is basically just a group of rulers, is you had to be married, okay? So we don't really know if Paul might have been single his entire life or he might have been married at one point and potentially his wife passed away. But we do know at this point in Paul's life, he is single, And he says this, look, this isn't a command. This is my preference. This is my wisdom. This is my opinion. I didn't hear a big booming voice, but whether you're single or you're married, they're both what? 
they are gifts from God. All right? They're precious. They're valuable, whether you're single or married. And here in verse 7, Paul is making a distinction between the condition and the gift of singleness. They're two different things. The, the condition of singleness is just where I'm single for a season of life, whereas the gift of singleness or celibacy is where I'm permanently single, all right, where God has given me this permanent gift. Now, just so you understand, Jesus, all right, and Paul at this point in his life had the gift of celibacy. God had called them to a life of singleness. And many people in the world today have the gift of singleness. And it is a good and right thing. Now, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you're asexual. It doesn't mean you're weird. It doesn't mean you're awkward. It doesn't mean you can't get along with people of the opposite sex. What it does mean is this, is that for whatever reason, all right, God has called you to remain single so that you could devote your life to the work of the kingdom. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean you're weird. It means you're called by God to focused devoted work for his kingdom. And God gives you an extra amount of his spirit and presence to fulfill you if that's what he calls you to. I mean, Paul had this gift. That's why he could be an apostle and plant churches and be this dynamic evangelist. Here's a couple more modern uh, examples. Have you ever heard of John Stott? Okay, you might have read a John Stott commentary. John Stott had the gift of celibacy and he devoted his life to studying, expounding, and writing commentaries for a majority of Scripture. And they're fantastic. But that's what he gave his life to. I think also about Mother Teresa. We've heard of Mother Teresa, right? She was single, and she gave her life, you know, to the orphans in Calcutta, India. All right? This is kind of funny, but I honestly believe that I had the gift of singleness, all right, up, just, about, just about up until I met Leah, Okay? This is true, all right? I mean, I, I, that's just what I thought because I was really comfortable being single. I was very independent, and I enjoyed it. I loved it. This is even funnier, all right? But at one point in my life, right before I graduated, I had to go through this application process to work for Campus Outreach. At that point in my life, I was still pretty spiritually young, immature, and I was learning a lot of things about the Bible. But part of the assessment process you had to fill out a spiritual gifts inventory. And it was just a long list of spiritual gifts that we get from Corinthians and Romans. And I'm just breezing right through this thing. And, and I read about gifts like service. And I think to myself, I was like, I've helped people before. I, I, help, I help my parents whenever I go home. I got that gift. I think about mercy. I'm like, I'm really nice to my little sister. I got that gift as well. And I go through and I check every spiritual gift, all right? I checked every box. All right, here's what's really interesting, all right? There's only one man, one individual that has walked this earth and could check every box. There's only one man that has every spiritual gift, and his name is what? It ain't Ben, it's Jesus Christ, okay? So I walked into my interview, and I was holding a piece of paper that essentially declared I am the second coming of Jesus Christ, all right? And so I sat down with these leaders, these guys who'd been in ministry for a long time, and they looked at me, and they were gracious and patient. And this one guy in particular, he said, he said Ben, uh, I see right here you have the gift of celibacy. 
I said, yes, sir, I got the gift of celibacy. You know, I came to the Lord a couple years ago, and since then I've learned what it looks like to, to date in a biblical way. I'm pursuing sexual purity. I got the gift of celibacy. He said, do you have any idea what that means? I said, not really, okay? <laughs> and so uh, he, he sat down, he was patient, and he explained it to me, all right? But uh, here, here's the point. God gets, some of us have the condition of singleness, but many of us, all right, and this is a good and right thing, have been given the gift of lifelong singleness. But here's what Paul says. Look, if you lack control, if your passions are aflame within you, pursue marriage. Marriage is a good thing. It's a gift as well. And marriage, it doesn't eliminate lust, but it sure does help. All right? So let's jump down to verse 25. Paul's about to lay out three more benefits, three gifts that singleness brings about. And he's going to make a contrast between singleness and marriage, all right? And my wife already went to the nine o'clock church service, so I can really turn it up. I can talk about how amazing singleness is right now and not get in trouble, okay? So we're going to start in verse 25. It says this, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn, as those that they were not mourning. And those who rejoice, as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy, as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world, as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried man or betrothed man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in the body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. See, this is what Paul is after, undivided devotion to the Lord, whether you're single or married. So we're going to point out three benefits that Paul mentions in this passage. They all start with the letter P, so you can remember this. All right, the first, Paul mentions pressure. All right, let's look at verse 26. Paul says this, in view of the present distress or the pressure. All right, Paul... See, likely what was going on in Corinth, there might have been a drought, there might have been a natural disaster, there might have been a famine, but food was scarce. And so Paul is describing this trouble, this pressure that he feels as he looks around and sees people starving, all right? There's also this fact, all right, that Paul lived a very dangerous lifestyle. This word distress that Paul uses in verse 26, it actually denotes violence, all right, and tremendous difficulty. And if you study the life of Paul, you know that this was his daily experience. Several times, Paul is stoned, all right? He's shipwrecked. Uh, there's times where he's jailed and imprisoned. 
In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions this. He says, it's like I die every day. The point is this, is that Paul faced intense persecution and suffering on a daily basis, and it was only increasing as far as he could tell. And look, this point might not resonate with our church in Carrollton, Georgia, in the Bible Belt, where it's accepted to be a Christian and you don't face any intense or violent physical persecution, but this is very practical for our brothers and sisters who follow Christ in different parts of the world. In places where, where if you make a decision to place your faith in Christ or follow him, all right, you are inviting violence and persecution on your life. And so Paul says, Paul's just making this point. He says, look, I've got a lot of dread when I go through these, these different sufferings, and that dread would only increase and intensify if I had a wife and family. All right, so there are places where there is intense persecution in the world, and Paul desires to spare us of that. So Paul mentions the pressures of marriage. All right, but then in verse 28, he talks about the problems. He talks about the problems. In verse 28, he says this, those who marry have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. See, this word that Paul uses, the word trouble, it's actually a word picture, and the picture Paul is painting is that of a wine press. And this is how they made wine back in Paul's days. They would take one big rock, a big boulder, they would cover it with grapes, and they'd get another big rock, and guess what they do? they just smash the grapes, all right? And then that grape juice would pour over the sides of the rock and all different sides. And you get what Paul is saying? He says sometimes when you're married, it feels like you're getting smashed by a big rock, okay? That's not the most romantic fuzzy feeling, but he says, look, being married, sometimes it's just like two sinners being squeezed together. That's what marriage feels like sometimes. And look, it's basic math if you think about it. When you're single, you just got to deal with one person's sin, right? But when you're married, you got to deal with twice the sin, all right? And you're just inviting miscommunication, misunderstanding, hurt feelings into your life when you decide to get married, all right? Look, when I was single, I never had to debate what restaurant I want to go to for lunch. It was really simple, all right? I just go to the one I want to. But now i got to figure out what my wife wants. And, and, and she might finally mention a specific restaurant, but then i got to figure out, does she want that restaurant? Or is she just saying that because I want that restaurant, all right? All right? Th- these are the problems of a married man, all right? It, it, it was never easy for me to decide what I want to do on a Friday night or for the weekend, all right? Right now, we just moved to a new house, And we're decorating, all right? Decorating used to be really easy, all right, as a single guy, because you just don't do it, all right? (laughs) All right? You you, you hang up the two posters you do own, and then you're done, right? Nothing has to match. Nothing even has to smell good. And so now I'm learning, all right? We, We have to paint walls. We have to have accent pieces, all right? We have to have colors that pop, right? We have to have all these different things, all right? These are just the daily problems, daily troubles, all right, that come with marriage. All right, but here's what we got to keep in mind. Marriage is not the solution, all right, to loneliness. It is not the solution, the ultimate solution to our sex drive or our desire for purpose. Marriage should only be the answer to God's will for our life because marriage, although it brings deep satisfaction, it brings so much joy. It is not primarily about our happiness. It's about our holiness, And so if you believe 
that if, if I could just meet the right person, if I could just marry this type of guy, everything would be okay. My life would be great. You have been deceived. All right? That's deception. See, the most miserable people are married people who enter their marriage hoping that it will satisfy their deepest longings. Because here's what happens, all right? They, they get a taste of that intimacy, but it doesn't answer and fulfill that. And it leads to misery, all right? So Paul mentions, all right, here are the benefits. There's no pressure, there's fewer problems, and then the final P, verse 32, preoccupation. All right, this is a big pre, P word. Our right, verse 32 says this, the married man is anxious about worldly things. How to please his wife, his interests are divided. And it's a simple point, but once again, Paul is saying this, when you're married, your interests are divided. You're distracted. And so conversely, Paul is saying, look, if you're single, what should you have? Undivided interest. All right? Focus, a devoted focus on pleasing the Lord. And so the bottom line is this. Paul is saying, if you're single, you are in a unique and special season of life because there is less pressure, there are fewer problems, and there is minimal worry and preoccupation. So therefore, don't waste your singleness. Look, I realize, okay, it's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, right now you might be motivated. All right, these verses and these points and these words might be clicking and you're just fired up to be single, okay? I hope you are. But guess what? It gets particularly hard when you go to another wedding of another friend. Or it gets really challenging when you get invited to another baby shower and you're around people who might be younger than you, who are already moving on to a different season of life. Or it might be really difficult when you click on Facebook and you look at that news feed and it's just unending proposals and new relationship statuses. All right? And then maybe you come to King's Chapel, you come to the church to get a respite, to get a break from just being bombarded of the pressure of having a relationship. All right? And, and, and maybe well-intentioned people come up to you uh, who are married and have families, and the only thing they want to ask you is, are you in a relationship? Are you dating someone? And if you're not, well, I know this Christian girl who would be perfect for you, right? And, and maybe you do find a church that has a lot of singles, but you go to the single group, and it feels like a Christian meat market, right? Just all this pressure, all right? So here's what I'm saying. All right? It gets, it gets tough. It gets hard. It was hard for me. There were seasons of loneliness where you ask yourself, all right, what's wrong with me? Or maybe you look around and you see maybe your friends or your fraternity brothers, and you're like, man, if they're getting married, what did I do wrong? All right, what's wrong with me? And here's what I would say, just real briefly. The Bible has a lot to offer when it comes to the topic of loneliness, and here's what's really interesting. We read about loneliness as early in the Bible as Genesis 2, right? Because God makes Adam, he places him in the perfect garden of Eden. Now, keep in mind, this is pre-fall. There's no sin. Adam has a job. Adam has animals. He has an entire garden. And guess what? God makes this observation. He says it's not good for man to be alone. All right, do you see this? See, loneliness is not necessarily a sign of spiritual immaturity or sin because Adam experienced loneliness in the perfect Garden of Eden. Loneliness is just part of the human experience. It's part of the human condition. But guess what? Jesus was lonely. 
He knows what it's like to be lonely. He was single for 33 years. On top of that, Hebrews describes Jesus as our great high priest who is tempted and tried in every way that includes loneliness. And guess what? He is able to sympathize. So if you're wrestling with this, if you're struggling with this, take it to Jesus. He understands. He's not distant. He knows what it's like to be a bachelor. He knows what it's like to be single. And here's what I'd say to our church families, to the men and women who are parents and husbands and wives who have moved on from the season of singleness. I would say, are you engaging with the singles in our church? Are you building relationships with the singles in our church? Are you inviting the singles in our church into your home? Because you can think about it this way. See, the Bible is clear. If you're a follower of Christ, the Holy Spirit has imparted you with some sort of spiritual gift, okay? It might be teaching. It might be evangelism. It might be mercy. And God calls you to use those gifts for what? The edification or the building up of this church body. And not only does the Holy Spirit give you certain specific gifts, he also gives you experiences, relationships, and wisdom. And so if you have the experience of 30 years of marriage, if you have the wisdom of raising a godly family, God wants you to use that experience to build up the singles in this church. Does that make sense? Look, I'm on a college campus every day. And so many of the students I minister to come from broken and dysfunctional homes. So to my families here, my husbands, my wives, my parents, I would ask you, all right, would you show, would you talk with these single men and women, would you show them what a real godly marriage looks like? Not a perfect one, all right, but what a marriage looks like that's pursuing Christ. Would you invite them into your home and just do normal, ordinary things? Right? Grill out on the back porch. Play board games with your family. Discipline your kids in front of them. Wash dishes. Right? Engage your wife. Give them a taste. Give them a picture of what a godly relationship looks like and talk about it. Don't paint marriage as some you know, bed of roses, but be real in a respectful way about some of the challenges you face in marriage. So here's what I'd say to the single people. So often we obsess we focus on sizing others up and figuring out, is he the one or is she the one? And instead of obsessing with whether or not this person is my perfect soulmate, my perfect match, instead we need to focus on becoming the one, all right? Becoming one, becoming the person you're looking for is looking for. You can think about it this way. Matthew 6, would be a great passage for you to memorize. It says this, seek first his kingdom and everything would be added to you. See, this is what Paul is calling us to. This is what Paul is calling the singles to, is to have undivided attention, to seek first the kingdom of God. So if you're single and you're sitting here today, here's the question you need to ask yourself. How can I be especially fruitful for Jesus Christ in this season of life? Does that make sense? We're always called to be fruitful for Jesus, but as a single person, how can I be especially fruitful for Jesus Christ? So you probably need to think about these things. How do I use my time? Do I use my time just for myself? Do I use my time in selfish ways? Or do I give my life to other people and other things? Maybe think about your location. 
As a single person, you're not married. You're not tied down to a certain city. So maybe you want to travel to a different country. Maybe you want to serve the Lord in another nation for an extended amount of time. But think about that. Just how am I going to use my location where I live to extend the kingdom of God? Think about your ministry. All right, You have more availability. You, you, you have more opportunities to connect with different people. So how am I going to share my faith? How am I going to disciple people? How am I going to serve people as a single person? And then finally, think about your development. All right? Am I growing in holiness? Am I pursuing the Lord? Am I just going through the motions? Am I just being filled up with entertainment and TV and movies? Or I'm just saying I'm going to develop in my theology, my love for the Lord, in my maturity. That should be our ambition as single people. See, the world says that your single years are all about your autonomy, right? Your independence, just doing whatever you want and not having anybody tell you what to do. But the Bible says the exact opposite. As a single person, we should be selfless. We should be willing to serve. We should be eager to make sacrifices. Because here's the reality, and this is the dirty secret, right, about marriage, is that just standing at the altar in a tuxedo and a white dress in front of your friends and family, it doesn't automatically, mystically make you a man who's selfless and sacrificial. It doesn't make you a woman who's compassionate and a helpmate, right? The ceremony doesn't do those things in your heart. You've got to develop those habits long before you, you walk to the altar, And so become the man, become the woman you're looking for is looking for. We'll wrap it up right here. Earlier I said this, that oftentimes we fall into the deception, the myth, that if I could just meet this type of person, if I could marry this type of man, if I could be pursued by this type of spouse, everything would be okay. And we said, look, that that is false, that is fictitious, but it's only true in an earthly sense. Guess what? It is completely true in a spiritual sense because Jesus is that person. See, Jesus is the only person that if we enter into a relationship with Christ, right, he can give us what no boyfriend, no spouse, no wife can. Only Jesus can meet our deepest longings. Only Jesus can give us the purpose, the fulfillment, the satisfaction that we most desire. And here's what's amazing about a relationship with Christ. It's a covenantal relationship. It's an eternal relationship because Jesus says this. He says, look, I give you my Holy Spirit. See, if you are a true follower of Christ, Christ's Spirit is within you. On top of that, in Matthew 28, Jesus says that, look, if you follow me, I am with you always until the end of the age. It's an eternal relationship. On top of that, in Hebrews, God remembers, reminds us that I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is an amazing relationship. But here's the reality. In order for us to have this type of eternal, satisfying relationship with God, guess what had to happen? Jesus had to become completely and utterly and totally single. To the, to the fullest sense of the word, Jesus had to be completely single as he, as he walked to the cross. You guys remember what happened right before Jesus was crucified. See, Jesus was followed by 12 men. These were his friends. These were his brothers. All right? 
But on the eve of the crucifixion, one of his most trusted confidants, Peter, right, denies him three times and says, Jesus, I never knew you. Another one of his disciples, Judas, betrays him for just some cash, 30 pieces of silver. The rest of the 12, they, took, they, they just take off and run. They completely abandon him in his time of need. The moment where Jesus needed his friends the most, what did they do? They ran. They deserted him. But to make matters worse, as Jesus was punished, as Jesus hung from the cross, he was separated from the Father. God the Father turned his back upon Jesus. Now keep this in mind. All right? Until this point, Jesus described his relationship with the Father like this. He said, I and the Father are one. From eternity past, God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son existed in a perfect harmony, in a perfect relationship, with perfect intimacy. But all of a sudden, in this moment, while Jesus, every time he looked up to God, he called him Abba and Father— on the cross, Jesus looks to God and prays, and he doesn't call him Father. He says this. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, on the cross, God was no longer the Father. He was distant. He had turned his back on Jesus. He forsook Jesus. Do you see this? Jesus had to become spiritually single so that we could be in a relationship with him. Because on the cross, Jesus was left alone utterly alone, completely single to drink the entire cup of God's wrath. And he drank it all by himself. But because Jesus drank the cup of wrath, now he is restored to God the Father. And you can be restored to God the Father. And I can have a relationship with God the Father. So why should we not waste our singleness? Look, I gave a lot of practical tips, but this is what's going to carry you through. This is what's going to motivate you when you're feeling alone, when it gets really tough. Why should we not waste our singleness? Because of Jesus Christ, even though we might be single, we'll never be alone. Do you get that? Because of Jesus Christ, even though we might be single, we'll never be alone. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the single people in our church. God, how they intend to lead godly lives. I pray that many of them would grow up to be godly husbands and wives and parents. I pray that we would also have godly single people who embrace the gift of singleness and do mighty works for your kingdom. I pray that we would be a church that loves our single people, that invites them into our home, encourages them, shows them examples of what godly parenting looks like. But God, more than anything, I pray that we would rejoice, that we would praise, that we never have to be truly alone. We will never experience true singleness because you did on our behalf. We pray this in your name. Amen.